This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Anthony Mara, Mercury Pictures presents. It's our August BNN Book Club pick, and if you know his earlier work, you know Tony also won the Discover Award for his first novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena which takes place over five days in Chechnya in 2004 during their civil war. And there's also a story collection called The Czar of Love and Techno, which sort of tips into that world. And maybe we'll get to the stories, maybe we won't. We're definitely going to get to Constellation. But let's talk about Mercury Pictures Presents, because I hear you had a pretty significant bout of writer's block while this book was coming into the world. I did. Well, well first, thank you so much for, for having me, Miwa. I, I... I'm so grateful to um, Barnes & Noble for uh, choosing Mercury as its August pick and for supporting my work so um, enthusiastically in the past. And I'm glad that there is finally work to support. I began working on it in 2014. And um, my first two books I had written fairly quickly. Um, Constellation took around 18 months. Um, the Czar of Love and Techno took maybe a little bit longer. So in my mind, I was going to be done with this book before Obama was out of office. Mm -hmm. And um, as you might have uh, gathered, it didn't quite go to plan. And, and it's, it's partially due to the fact that there's just so much rich material in, um, in Hollywood during the 1940s, which is where much of the book is, is set. There is just sort of like an endless rabbit hole you can go down. Um, and of course, one of the problems with um, writing a book about the movie industry is that sitting around watching movies technically counts as research. Um, so that could have been why it took me so long. But but um, it finally kind of came together really during the pandemic, actually. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was living uh, with my wife in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. We lived in a small one-bedroom apartment, and um, the blank page was kind of my only means of escape. And I suddenly found myself in this position of having to create on the page the kind of, of joy and, and levity and laughter um, and hope that felt so missing in my life at the time. Um, and I hope that, you know, given the state of the world um, through the pandemic and today, that it will similarly transport readers who pick it up um, this month. So Mercury Pictures Presents is an epic World War II story. I mean, we're cutting between Mussolini's Italy and the United States, specifically Hollywood, in the 1940s. So we're getting a whole new world. I haven't seen a World War II novel like this before. So if that's your thing, folks, you definitely, definitely need to pick up Mercury Pictures Presents. I will say we are going to stay spoiler-free in this conversation because uh, Tony is doing his book club event with us in New York City at the Union Square store in September. So if you want the spoilers, you can come then. The details will be on bn.com. But I'm going to ask you, Maria... Maria Lagana, who is a fantastic character. Please tell me she's the first person who showed up. Oh, she, she definitely <laughs> is. Um, yeah, she is. Um, she is one of my favorite characters that I've, I've ever written. She, um, she is this irreverent, um, brash, ambitious driver. She works as an associate producer at Mercury Pictures, which is this B-movie studio. Um, that becomes a nexus for European refugees and exiles who came to Hollywood um, 
for sanctuary and for employment during the 1930s and 40s. And she um, she reminds me a little bit of Rosalind Russell's character in His Girl Friday, only a little more salty and a lot more Italian. And when we first meet her, she um, is uh, having a bad day. Um, she's found out that her boss is under investigation by the US Senate. She has found out that the studio itself is in dire financial straits. Sort of nothing in her personal or professional life is really going to plan. And like so many characters in this novel, she has arrived to Hollywood while uh, running from her past. She grew up in fascist Italy and ended up fleeing to Los Angeles with her mother after a childhood transgression led to her father's arrest. So even though she has reinvented herself as this unflappable producer, she remains haunted by the role she played in her father's fate. And I wouldn't necessarily describe a character that shows up from Italy as a friend, but he's definitely from her past. And we meet him first and his name is Nico, and then we see him again in Hollywood, and his name is Vincent. And we're going to let people discover that particular transition for themselves because it's a really fun moment in the book. But their sort of push and pull and their history and their present because Maria gets Vincent a job at the studio. In looking at uh, autobiographies and memoirs and histories of this period, you find that so many of the exiles who came to Hollywood always were looking over their shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, and they arrived to the U.S. thinking that it would be, you know, the land of the free and found um, quite a different story upon, uh, upon their arrival here. And some of that has to do with, you know, the, the, um, the general, you know, prejudices of, of the time. And some of it also had to do with the fact that um, they all left some part of themselves back in Europe. And that is certainly the case for Maria, whose beloved father um, remains in, in Italy in part due to her. And so when this character who um, largely goes by Vincent in, in mm -hmm. the, uh, the book, um, arrives with news of um, of her father, um, which we won't spoil. Mm -hmm. uh, it becomes this moment where Maria, for the first time, really um, has to face um, her past. And as uh, as um, you know, some of us may know, facing the past is not a comfortable experience. <laughs> um, and their their back and forth, their sort of antagonistic relationship, is is one of the the central. Uh, relationships in the novel. And one of the things you're writing about in Mercury Pictures Presents, too, is what you call the landscape of exile. And I think this is a really important point, because as much as Maria sort of raises an eyebrow at Nico, more, uh, Vincent, excuse me, more often than not, and he's sort of looking at her going, hey, hey, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not that person. Vincent ends up really becoming part of her day-to-day -day life in a way that I think neither of them would have expected. I mean, again, as I mentioned, she gets him a job, but he also becomes friends, quite good friends, with her boyfriend, who's called Eddie Liu, who's Chinese-American, and he's an actor. And I'm coming to Eddie for a second, and maybe a little earlier than I had planned, because one, he's a great character, but two, it's the first time in a while I've seen any kind of Asian-American in a World War II story who's grappling with the reality of the internment camps and racism on the set and all sorts of, and he's a really great character. He's a really good dude. So when did Eddie show up for you? He showed up um, fairly early on. I realized that 
I couldn't write honestly about Los Angeles in this period without writing about um, Japanese American internment. And I also realized that that was a story that perhaps um, I'm not the best person to tell. So I began thinking about how within the world of movies at that time, individuals were creating propaganda and these sort of um, grotesque fantasies in order to justify um, the treatment of Japanese Americans um, in California during that era. And one, when I was reading into that and, and sort of looking at these movies, one of the sort of um, bizarre and kind of um, grotesque little details that came out was that because um, Asian Americans had been so sort of excluded from cinematic representation throughout you know, Hollywood history, there were essentially very few actors who could play Japanese villains in that time, time period. And so this resulted in a number of Chinese and Korean American actors who suddenly were given, you know, by the standards of the, the time, relatively lucrative contracts. But the sort of devil's bargain that they were asked to enter into is to, um, you know, perpetuate these rather, um, you know, rather racist, um, horrible um, uh, depictions of, of Japanese, um, Japanese Americans. And, and so Eddie Liu, his, his, his livelihood is in conflict with, um, with his conscience. And um, at the same time, he's determined after being marginalized for so long in this industry um, to use this brief window where he has a little bit of leverage to, um, to get something for himself. He's a good dude. That yeah. Eddie Lou, he's a good dude, and lots of interesting stuff happens. One of the things that that I really love is is his relationship with Maria, mm-hmm. uh, because they are both uh, they are both outsiders in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Maria as as a woman, as an Italian immigrant, and Eddie Lou as a Chinese American man, um, and their experiences, sort of what leads them to Mercury, um, is vastly vastly different, and yet they can see each other so clearly. And there is this wonderful tenderness and, and intimacy between them. Um, and I, I, I've, I've always struggled with writing love stories. And I feel like this is by far and away sort of the most, the most mature and honest uh, love story that, um, that I've come up with. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. But Artie Feldman and his wife Mildred are a different kind of love story. <laughs> <laughs> Artie <laughs> is Maria's boss. And Mildred... She gets her husband. She understands what she signed up for. And he's running this studio, which I had never heard the phrase Poverty Row Studio. And as you describe it, it's a B-movie studio, but Poverty Row is like, oh, that, yeah. uh, that is a phrase I've never heard. But Mildred, Mildred knows what's going on. She knows who her husband is. He's well-intentioned, but he's already. Yeah. He's already, he just, he wants to make a buck and have a life and do his thing. And find his sister who has disappeared in Poland mm-hmm. and also battle with his twin brother, Ned <laughs> lives on, lives on the East coast. He's in New York. He's, he's the, let's call him the finance guy, I guess. The finance guy. He's the, finance, guy. He, he's the finance bro. Yeah, he really, yeah, he really, really is. And boy, Ned makes some choices. <laughs> <laughs> he makes some choices, but let's talk about Artie for a second because Artie and Ned are a different kind of connection to the American dream to the idea of Hollywood. I mean, Artie essentially discovers Maria and gives her a chance that not a lot of other folks would have done. I mean, if this, if you were trying to write about Universal, one of the big established studios, you wouldn't necessarily find Maria doing what she was doing 
and given the the rain to do it. Yeah, one of the really interesting things about these Poverty Row studios. So so um, basically, the studio system was set up so you had a number of the you know the major studios like uh, MGM, Universal, Paramount, and then sort of on the periphery there were these um, Poverty Row studios that made. B-movies and other very low budget pictures um, that sort of filled in the gaps. Um, and uh, one of the really fascinating things about these, these smaller studios was that there was a degree of um, creativity and, and artistic license that you simply couldn't do if you were dealing with million dollar budgets. Um, and so that does give someone like Maria the opportunity to, um, to maybe rise a little bit faster than she would at um, at one of these rival larger companies, and I, I really love the back and forth between her and, and Artie. Artie is a, a character that I think he's a type that appears in a lot of my work, sort of a um, a well-meaning buffoon who is trying to do trying to do good within the strictures of his severe moral limitations. He and Maria. Um, have this kind of, um, this almost like screwball comedy back and forth kind of whenever they're put together. He, they were two characters that um, I felt like I was channeling, um, you know, Billy Wilder every time that, um, every time that I was writing them in a room together. But in general, the dialogue in Mercury Pictures Presents is really sharp. It's really smart. It, there were a couple of points too, where outside of movie references, it felt a little bit like The Rules of Civility by Amor Tolls, that kind of snap where it's that constant movement. And, and you're always pushing the story forward through dialogue. It's almost like you're writing a screenplay, my friend. It's almost <laughs> cinematic, you might say. Imagine, imagine. But let's talk about the structure. Let's talk about the dialogue. I mean, how did you know, when did you know, I should say, um, that you had the voices right? Because it would be really easy to deliver a caricature and sort of slide past the point you're trying to make because you are like this whole landscape of exile and war and trauma there's so many big ideas that you're covering in this book and yet I never once felt like you were shaking a finger at me and saying okay now young lady you need to read your cultural vegetables you need to understand you know it's it's not like you'd given me homework I was like well what's going to happen next yeah well well thank you I um I I guess I was trying to um trying to really think about what it was like to be in those rooms in these studios at the time, that, that there are um, obviously uh, these much larger sort of traumas that these characters are, um, you know, are experiencing. But I think that so often when we look back in the past at these, at these moments of, of, of trauma, um, we only see it as sort of this universal um, Sort of like dark cloud hanging over everything, and I think that when you're actually living in the moment, you know people people aren't necessarily thinking in these like big abstract terms about you know um, about large questions of history and politics. You're you know you're cracking a joke with your friend as as you know you're um, as you're watching you know something dismal on the news. Um, you know we're we're living through a pretty grim time right now, but. Um, I don't think that that has in any way, um, you know, reduced the ability to to crack a joke every now and then. And, and I, I think that like so many of these characters, they um, they find themselves in these in sort of the grips of, of, of absurdity. And I think that comedy um, is the most eloquent expression of, of absurdity, that it is it is a way of trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. 
And so um, a joke, I think, functions not only as like a moment of levity, but as a way of like suddenly exposing all that's bewildering about um, about life. Oh, Maria's aunties are very funny. Maria's mother is scathingly funny in ways that I I wasn't quite sure where Maria's mother was going to go, but she ends up having her own adventure. So in the United can I States. tell you the secret? Yes, please. Um, so Maria's great aunts are based on my own great aunts. My okay. Mimi, <laughs> Lala, and Pep, who were these um, small little uh, Italian American ladies mm-hmm. in their late nineties and. Mm-hmm. Um, were very much the basis, uh, you know, not just in name, uh, uh-huh. Maria's, Maria's aunts who are, um, who are, are just, uh, they're so fatalistic and so dour and um, wonderfully, uh, uh, just wonderfully opinionated um, uh, on just about everything in Maria's life. Well, especially the whole, when are you going to settle down and get married? And Maria's like, <laughs> I really don't have time for that. Like, I'm building an empire. What is going on? <laughs> But that push and pull is really, it's so wonderful to see. And actually, one of the aunties marries a man. (laughs) He's a great character. So how much of this is based, though, in your own imagination? And how much of this, there's some details in there that make me think there was a little bit of research that went in to Mercury Pictures Presents and beyond the movie watching, because clearly the movie watching did, but you do have to do a little bit of homework to get Los Angeles in this period. Yeah, absolutely. I and and one of the reasons this this took so so long to write is because I felt like I was constantly um, I was constantly researching. I never stopped researching, and every mm-hmm. time I found something particularly um, engaging that really captured my imagination, I would have to shift the whole book to accommodate it. W- one one um, of the excellent many excellent sources I consulted was actually the um WPA guide to 1930s Los Angeles and it is this absolutely brilliant kind of tourist guide um to 30s LA um and so a lot of the you know a lot of the details came from sources uh sources like that but this was a book more so than any other that I've I've worked on that I also tried to um I tried to pull from my own family's um background a little mm-hmm, bit mm-hmm. Uh, which which feels feels very new and strange and in, in, in some respect I think that that you know when I'm uh, 80 years old maybe I'll write a first person uh, coming of age story uh, based on my life like I, I feel like like I'm very slowly moving towards um, the more autobiographical we'll see how long that lasts but yeah this was um, a book that you know the the very active researching felt like um, this this transportative experience. And I really wanted to convey that sense of transportation, transportativeness um, on the page. I think that, you know, um, whenever I pick up uh, a book, one of the things that um, that I'm looking for is that feeling as a reader of being taken somewhere far from your daily life that nonetheless speaks in a deep way to your daily life and the world you're living in. And I think that there are a lot of those echoes between, you know, the 1940s and today that the book um, hopefully, uh, hints at without being too, um, dramatic about me. Yeah. You have written a very timely book, you know, writer's block, notwithstanding. You it's never good when a, when, a, when a novel that deals with fascism is timely. It's, yeah, it's, it's, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, you really by accident delivered a very, very timely historical novel, but I want to go back for a second to A Constellation for Vital Phenomenon, which is a book that I have loved for a very, very long time. And, you know, a lot of that same bleak humor is there. 
It's Chechnya during the war in 2004 and, and has a really powerful opening. And I am going to encourage folks that if you haven't read it yet, you really should. It is, it's five days in the middle of a war zone and it starts with a little girl whose father has disappeared, an eight-year-old whose father has disappeared and, and her neighbor takes her in and it goes from there. And I heard years ago that you had done kind of a massive rewrite on Constellation. And Constellation is one of those debut novels that reads so cleanly and it's so propulsive and it's really, it's an extraordinary book, which is why we obviously chose it for our Discover program and gave it the Discover Award. But I like this idea of rewriting and stripping down to the studs. So can we talk about that for a second? Because I feel like that happened with Mercury Pictures Presents too. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely did. So um, when I was in graduate school, I, I took a class, a novel writing seminar with the, the great Elizabeth McCracken, who is um, just a genius. And um, I would highly recommend everybody read everything she's ever written, written because she is amazing. Um, but uh, I took this novel writing class and I was working on a book actually set in Northern Ireland. It was very much the work of an apprentice, let's say. Um, and I, I turned it in, and you know, uh, uh, Elizabeth was uh, was was very generous, perhaps <laughs> overly generous, let's say, um, with, uh, with with her feedback. And um, at some point um, later that that semester, I I showed her this short story that I had um, been working on, which. Uh, which was set in the world of, of what would eventually become Constellation. It was maybe, you know, 15 pages. And she read it and um, she said, you should really, you know, put that other book to bed and, and work on this. And it was one of those, um, those moments that, um, that I'm so grateful for and, and that, you know, she could see within just this rough scaffolding of the short story that there was something there that the 400 pages of you know, of Drek that that she previously waded through didn't have that there was some magic in 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 the characters of of Ahmed and Sonia and 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 Ava and um and that ended up becoming what inspired me to you know focus on the book that became Constellation. You mentioned that you needed sort of the the focus that came with the pandemic to be able to really sit down and and dig back into Mercury Pictures, but do you remember? when you understood that it had stalled and you had not had the threat? Because I remember being told this was going to be a slightly different book, more about a director than this entire world that you created. And I'm delighted with the book that exists now. But like I said, I suspect you do this more than you don't. You just strip everything down and, and restart a lot. So let's talk about your process for a second, because it seems that it's pretty consistent book to book stories long form fiction, it seems like you know what you want and if you're not hitting it, yeah, put it aside. Yeah, I, I do feel like, like um, I, I, I think, I remember seeing a, an interview with Colson Whitehead once and, and he said that, um, that if, if the words were coming someday, he'll go catch a matinee with the other weirdos. And, um, and I always kind of thought that that was really sensible and humane advice. And with, with, with Mercury, I, um, I unfortunately, in the the early years, I think that I just had difficulty um, finding the right container to mm -hmm. these characters in that um, one of the things that I love doing in in fiction is um, 
creating these, these very large cast of characters with sort of intertwining um, nar narratives. Um, uh, I kind of love the idea of, of writing books where you reach the end and you see how everything comes together and suddenly, you know, there's just this, this feeling of aha. Um, and, and it just took me a, a long time to figure out what, what that particular container um, was. And I think in part it, it, it's due to um, the research process where um, I almost, I, I know that writers often talk about research using the language of archeology, span that they're excavating this or unearthing that. For me, I've always seen, seen it more as, as map making where you are creating a map and every little interesting tidbit, every little little anecdote or story becomes um, coordinates on your map. And you're trying to figure out how to move from point to point um, until you finally reach the end. And so figuring out um, a, a sort of scale of the map that is, is wide enough um, to accommodate um, your various you know, research interests becomes uh, the reason that you often, or I shouldn't say you, I often have to kind of um, tear everything down and start from scratch again. Because I mean, honestly, if it gets too big, then everyone just gets lost. <laughs> there are, we, we, we could name names, but, but we won't. we're not gonna do that. <laughs> There's a book for everyone. <laughs> there we go. That is a very diplomatic way. You must There's, be a bookseller. <laughs> there is a book for every, I, and actually I honestly believe that. I just, when I have people tell me that they don't like to read, I just kind of look at them strangely and say, well, you just haven't met your book yet. <laughs> You know, because they're also, I'm I'm a big believer if a book isn't working for me, I do not force myself to finish. I've never forced myself outside of school to finish something. What's your um, your batting average in terms of, of how many books you begin that you actually finish? I honestly don't know because I don't know how many books I read in a year. I mean, we produce two to three episodes of the show, plus I'm reading for pleasure, plus I'm reading for other bits of work and whatnot. So I can't, I, I honestly don't. No. I mean, I can tell you that I have multiple books going at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I've repurchased things because I don't know where the original copy is. Yeah. <laughs> That's slightly embarrassing. I mean, it's good. It's good for writers. It's good for us. But losing I, our books. I, I do, I'm one of those people where I'm like, I don't know where that or I possibly gave it to some. I'm sort of very liberal with the here, take it. Um, I can always get another copy, which unfortunately is not always the case. <laughs> It's a little easier in this day and age, but there are times where I'm like, oh man, I, and I'm also pretty sure that I once bought back a used copy of something that the marginalia looks suspiciously like marginalia in my handwriting. And I, and I know the odds, the odds are significantly very low, but I'm, I was looking at it going, I, I, I think, I, mm, okay, this is weird, but I think this might be <laughs> So, I mean, the the thing that I appreciate, though, especially historical fiction, obviously, is having a moment. And it's the idea that you've created this entirely new landscape. I know very little about Italy. In, I mean, I have an uncle who lives outside of Milan, but, you know, I, that's sort of my experience of I've never been to Rome, all of this. And so to have you say, oh, we're going to go to Italy instead. Like, we've seen the German landscape. We've seen the French landscape. I, they're tropes for a reason. I mean, they were. I get that you're pulling from your family's story, but still, there had to have been something else that was driving that. Well, yeah. So I, I would say that um, when when I first, first, first um, started considering this book, um, I, I was sort of trying to decide between two books. And, and one was set um, 
in Hollywood amid the community of of European exiles who who were um, living there. And the other book was very amorphous, but something generally set in Southern Italy. Um, And I, for a number of months, was sort of ping-ponging back and forth between the two of those ideas. And um, at one point, I ended up going to on vacation to to Lipari, which is a island off the coast of Sicily um, that my great grandmother's family is is from. And it's this absolutely gorgeous, you know, sun drenched um, sort of like uh, what you think of if you know from Il Postino or something like that, um, which in fact was was filmed there. And while I was there, I noticed this uh, this memorial to. Um, the anti-fascists and artists and intellectuals who had been sentenced to internal exile by Mussolini's regime on this island. And it just seemed so surreal that this island paradise to which I could trace my own roots had been um, had been Mussolini's Alcatraz. And I remembered in that moment that um, that the German exiles in LA would often refer to Los Angeles as sunny Siberia. And it occurred to me that the Italian exiles who had been sent to Lipari um, might have also used that exact same term to describe this island that they were um, exiled uh, within. And it occurred to me that this novel would um, perhaps be the story of two sunny Siberias um, and one family divided between them. So that was kind of how I was able to finally draw together um, the Italy sections and the Los Angeles sections. And everything really flows. And I mean, okay, let's, we know you had a stop and a start and a stop and a start and all of that. But once you were into what becomes Mercury Pictures Presents, let's talk about the structure for a second, because you're bouncing back and forth between time and place and character POV. And there's some minor character. There's a cop in San Lorenzo who's <laughs> married to a madam, which I thought was a nice touch. <laughs> but how are you, again, and I know you, we'll go back to this map idea. I mean, you've, you've mapped out all of these pieces and places, but again, process. Are you sitting down? Are you writing in a linear fashion? Or are you writing around the characters and the moments that you need to write around and then figuring out how everything essentially fits together like a puzzle? Oh, I, I can't even write a paragraph in a linear fashion. I, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I I tend to jump around uh, quite a lot, um, mm. and partially it's it's uh, because I'm easily distractible, um, and uh, partially I think it's it's simply how how my mind operates. I've tried so many times over the years to write a sensible, you know, linear uh, novel with a single POV and. It, it for whatever reason it um, I just can't seem to do it in a way that feels you know vital and alive to me and I think part of it is you mentioned um, the presence of, of minor characters and I feel like one of the things that um, that I've always really felt was important in my work is to try to write books without minor characters I love the idea of giving every character their their sentence in, in the spotlight um, I feel like it really opens up the world of, of a book and you begin to see how how um, these individuals who are thrown together, you know, it, it interact and influence each other in these in these very subtle but meaningful ways. Um, that I think, um, yeah, as as a reader, I, I love it. You know, when you come to to those moments in a book, and and I certainly tried to recreate that that experience in this. 
It's really satisfying. It is really, really satisfying. I do want to talk about literary influences for a second. I mean, you talked about that great piece of advice from Colson Whitehead. But you've also in the past talked about how Edward P. Jones' The Known World is an influence and The English Patient, Michael Ondaatje's classic. Um, but let's talk about some of the other influences. I mean, you've done your MFA at Iowa. You were a Stegner Fellow at Stanford. I mean, the Guggenheim Fellowship, there are, <laughs> there are many, many accolades that follow behind your name and many awards as well. But let's talk about the writers that have helped make you Anthony Mara. Um, I would say Zadie Smith, I would put her very high on the list, um, particularly on beauty and white teeth. Um, I feel like she both has that very capacious um, worldview um, in which she is able to introduce all sorts of wonderfully eccentric side characters. Um, but she also, I feel like, um, does use humor in a really, in, in a way that I've, I've tried to, um, you know, really uh emulate in, in my own work. Um, David Mitchell is, is somebody who has always, um, for similar reasons, has always been um, at the top of, of any list in terms of um, personal influences. Um, in terms of thinking of this book um, specifically, I would say that um, uh, Dr. Faustus by Thomas Mann and Mephisto by his son, um, uh, were both books that I thought about a lot in terms of like the the devil devil's bargains that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, individual artists make with the um, politics of of their era. Did anything surprise you, or did anyone surprise you in Mercury Pictures? I mean, there are so many moments where I can think, "Oh, that must have been fun for you <laughs> getting that on the page." But I mean, again, and you're you're wrestling with a not insignificant cast and big ideas and a lot of time and a lot of space and an ocean. But there had to have been something that made you say, hey, wait a minute, this is pretty cool. I can't wait for the world to see this bit. Yeah, I, I, th there were quite a few um, little little instances. Uh, we're not giving away spoilers, so I, right. I, I, won't, um, I won't get into um, a couple of my favorite um, uh, sort of surprising events. But, but one, one sort of small little little nugget that um, really uh, set me um, on my heels was the fact that um, in the nineteen in the early nineteen forties, Hollywood set designers collaborated with um, local Los Angeles um, aviation plants in order to create these camouflages. There, there was a, a worry at the time that the LA's big um, aviation plants, Lockheed uh, Lockheed Martin and Douglas Aircraft, would be targeted. Um, by uh, you know enemy bombers, and so in order to disguise these plants from aerial aerial view, um, these Hollywood set designers created these suburbs um, on top, literally on top of these um, airplane uh, hangars. And uh, you can see photos of, of them online if you if you Google it. They're absolutely wild. Um, you from from you know even um, a couple stories up, you can't really tell where the airplane. Uh, hangers end and where the rest of you know this uh, suburban uh, neighborhood begins. And one of the things that I found so interesting about it is this idea that that this peaceful suburbia that in fact was um, inhabited by actors. There were actors who you know were pretending to live in these houses and walk their dogs and mow the lawn. Um, that this was kind of the only place in LA that was seemingly untouched by war. Um, that, that they were living this sort of placid residential suburban life up there while beneath their feet 
um, weapons of you know of, of war were coming off the assembly line. So that was one of those one of those moments where I was just like, "This is crazy." Um, and uh, yeah, um, there are many such moments in the book. You know, it's wild to me. People always think of Hollywood first when it comes to Los Angeles. And I'm like, no, we, we have other stuff happening. It's okay. Like, there's a <laughs> lot going on. And aviation is one of those things. And, you know, beyond, obviously, the war effort and everything else, like, there's a lot happening in and around <laughs> Los Angeles that doesn't actually involve movies and television. It's just kind of the most fun to play with. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. I mean... There are times where I'll watch a movie set in LA and I'm like, you can't actually, no, wait, that, no, what? <laughs> and I mean, I, it's true for New York too, when you're like, no, you really can't get from Queens to Lower East Side in 20 minutes, but little things like that. Mm -hmm. But when you're reading, and this may shift when you're writing too, but when you're reading, what are you looking for first in a novel? That's a, a great question. I, I think that as a reader, I want, characters that feel rich and complex. You know, one of the things I, I kind of, um, uh, I kind of hate is, is when people uh, compliment well-rounded characters. I feel like you live in, in uh, there's this curse of well-roundedness that I always find rather frustrating, but that's not, neither here nor there. I, I want oddly shaped uh, uh, characters um, that uh, feel as kind of as troubled and and idiosyncratic and um, individual as you know as I think we all are. Um, so I would say I would say that I'm first and foremost drawn to characters. I would say that humor is another thing that is is really important. If um, if a book doesn't um, engage with with humor, um, I find it difficult to. I, I I feel like that's just a signal that that I may just share a different worldview from the the, the author. Um, and I, I guess, lastly, I, I would just say that that sense of being taken out of your um, out of your life. You know, one of the um, real joys of fiction, I think, is that you can walk around in somebody else's head for a while, um, and uh, that's just a, a, a genuinely magical um, experience. I think when when it really works, and that's something I feel like every time I open a book, it's like you know, it, when you open a, a book, I feel like we're all optimists, you know. Every time you open a book, you're 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 going into it with good faith, with um, and I feel like when when that when that optimism, when that that uh, that good faith pays off, it's uh, it's just the best, isn't it? Totally, totally. There is nothing like reading a book for the first time and realizing it's the one, yeah. and it's exactly what you were hoping for at exactly the moment. I mean, there are times where I've gone back to things. I am attempting Middle March yet again. I, you know, I, yes, there was a pandemic. I could have read it during the active lockdown. And I've had so many people I respect say, no, no, really, Middle March. And I keep trying. I even bought a new copy with a better jacket because sometimes that helps. <laughs> we'll see. I am always an optimist when I sit down with a new book. I really am. And, and sometimes that just pays off and it's aces. And then there are times where you're like, huh, okay, not for me. Yeah. Okay, but what's next for you? I realize you just finished this and you're going to have to tour and everything else, but seriously, what's next? You know, I, I've got a couple ideas kicking around. We'll see, uh, we'll see what happens with them. I will say that uh, one thing I really liked um, with Constellation and Czar is sort of this idea of, of two books that are somewhat in conversation with, with each mm -hmm. other. Um, and so I, I would say that, um, that I'm, I'm, perhaps in, I'm perhaps contemplating something that in one degree or another is is in conversation with what the adventure presents. You know, and Russian oligarchy is a thing. I mean, you there we could, go. I, I'm just thinking of a couple of characters that could pop back up. 
from Sar specifically. Where I'm like, well, do 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 do. But you know what? Let's get Mercury Pictures presents out into the world. Let's let people meet Maria and Vincent and Artie, <laughs> Artie. and Eddie. All of the, I mean, these characters are really, really terrific. And there's a moment with Bella Lugosi that I'm not going to spoil here, but I was laughing pretty hard. <laughs> it does something where you're like, huh? I can totally believe that would have happened. I have no idea if it's based in fact or not. And I really don't care because it's such a nice moment in the book. You know what I'm talking about. We'll probably talk about it in September. Anthony Mara, thank you so much for joining. Mercury Pictures is out now. It is the August Barnes & Noble Book Club pick. And really, come hang out with us in September. We are going to broadcast the book club discussion on the internet. I Hopefully, it will be live if the tech holds. If not, we'll just broadcast it later. But it's going to be a fun night, so you should come, especially if you're in New York. But thank you again, Anthony. It was really, really good to see you. Thank you so much. This was such a treat. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Mercury Pictures Presents. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my buddy, Becky. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. (laughs) So we've got a couple of great books to talk to you about, particularly old Hollywood glitz and glamour kind of titles. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump in if you're cool. Right ahead. Thank you very much. So the book that I chose is West of Sunset by Stuart O'Nan. This is a book that follows the last few years of the life of F. Scott Fitzgerald. And it's around a time when he decides to try his hand at screenwriting and joining the Hollywood elite. Is in a place in his life where probably a, a new life decision is not the smartest choice. His health is failing. His finances are pretty much crumbled to nothing. And his wife, Zelda, has been institutionalized. So, yeah, of course, why not try something new? While he's there, um, he is writing um, his last novel, The Last Tycoon, which uh, was finished actually after his death. He meets and falls for a gossip columnist, which probably is the worst person that that man could ever (laughs) fall for because, I mean, he's got so much gossip and baggage of his own. Um, But the book is fantastic. It's not as glitzy and glamorous as some other Hollywood titles, but it is beautifully written, very fascinating, and, you know, another peek at the life of a prolific author. So please check out West of Sunset by Stuart O'Nan. Becky, do you have one for us? (laughs) I do. Yay! Uh, So I found a a book actually very similar to that and Mercury Pictures Presents. This is A Touch of Stardust by Kate Alcott. And it's another historical fiction behind the scenes of Hollywood um, book. This one, behind the scenes of Gone with the Wind. Oh. I know. So um, it follows um, Julie Crawford. She is newly graduated from college uh, out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And she has dreams of being a screenwriter in Hollywood. Not the dreams that her parents had in <laughs> for her necessarily. Yeah. So, uh, but they give her a chance to go out there and try to make it out there. And she does not find that screenwriting job right off the bat, but she does manage to get herself on on the lot and uh, and behind the scenes of <laughs> Gone with the Wind. There she meets an assistant producer who she quickly falls in love with. And then through him, she meets legendary actress Carol Lombard. And, uh, of course, Carol is there because she is having an affair with Clark Gable. 
So, yes. So this is all historical fiction. So these are actual historical events and things that have occurred, but then we're just fictionalizing some stuff. Carol actually hires Julie to be her assistant. And then through her, she is meeting everybody and anybody in uh, in Hollywood. And notably, she then finally meets Oscar-winning screenwriter uh, Frances Marion. And then through her, she finally gets that screenwriting job. So she starts writing her first film. And it's very exciting. We get to see then what happens with this naive girl from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and how she's making it then in Hollywood. And we definitely get to see her grow up quite a lot. It's uh, it's a really fun book. It does have notes of anti-Semitism. And again, this is on the cusp of World War II. So you're going to get, you know, that kind of meatiness as well. It's a fun book, especially if you are a fan of Gone with the Wind. Uh, Touch of Stardust by Kate Alcott. Please pick it up. Nice. <laughs> I feel like we chose some goodies. I agree. I mean, I, we I always mean, do. We, we're pretty good at that. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for tuning into Poured Over. Please give us some support with a rating and hit that button and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. I'm Becky. You can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.